Good evening, good morning, good day, wherever you are in the world today. My name is Herb and I'm an alcoholic. Please join me in the prayer for spiritual intervention, expressing that set aside attitude, a commitment for an open mind and an open heart. God, please set aside everything that I think I know about myself, my brokenness, my spiritual path, and you for an open mind and a new experience with myself, my brokenness, my spiritual path, and especially you. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Again, we're looking at step one, and we will be continuing to look at it for several weeks because it has many parts. And you can see there on the screen, <clears throat> literally the step from the big book. And you can see in the way it's structured that it has a dash. Because of the demographics of this group and the invitation to work the steps to anybody who's interested in a spiritual awakening, each of you has to determine what word you use in the place of alcohol. We admitted we were powerless over and it may be a question mark. Several of you had indicated that you're here because you're not sure if, in fact, you even have an addiction and if you do what it is. And we're in hot pursuit with the questions that we help you ask yourself. And even though you may be in a fellowship that is committed to one addiction, like alcohol, for instance, and you may have five or 10 or 20 or 30 years of continued abstinence in that recovery program. There may be other areas in your life that are being challenged by this work that we're doing to take a look at the possibility of addiction in the whack-a-mole mode of something that has come up either because it came after you got abstinent or you're becoming aware of it because of your abstinence. Well, that's all about the addiction. And addiction from my standpoint, very informal definition, is any repetitive behavior over which I have no control or I lose control that leads to negative consequences. And we're focused on that. We've been looking at one part of a two-part evaluation of addiction. We looked at the body, the doctor's opinion. A medical doctor that is a psychiatrist has said we have a body problem and a mind problem, but focused on the body problem. 
And we looked at that very deeply and had lots of wonderful discussion about your experience with losing control. Once you start losing control, that's the only question. Everything else is prelude or story. Everything else, all other words, all other thoughts, all other feelings, all other comments that you would make are either prelude or story. There's only one question and one answer. Did you ever lose control once you start? And we've addressed that. We don't have to go back over that. But we're in now hot pursuit of the real problem as Bill sees it, the problem of the mind. Why do we start after a period of abstinence? What is it that is operational in us that doesn't allow us to manage and control and continue the abstinence that is the key to the minimizing or the elimination of the suffering in our lives and other people. We'll look at that tonight, the problem of the mind. In a couple of weeks, and I keep promising it, we'll get to what I consider to be, as does the big book, the real problem, the part after the dash, the spiritual malady. Bill calls it unmanageability here in the step. You can see that. The dash is not an and. If you put an and there, he would have been connecting unmanageability to the addiction. But he put a dash because they're not connected. Oh, clearly, everybody's experience is that if, in fact, you're in your addiction, your life is unmanageable, that goes without saying. Anybody who does anything to excess and is living that way is going to experience unmanageability in terms of their own personal lives. But that's not what the big book suggests here. The big book is suggesting that our lives are unmanageable, even though our addiction has been, in fact, contained. And that's why in step 10, he says we're not cured. He's not as clear as I am in terms of the way I say it. But once we get to it and through it, you will see, I believe, the legitimacy of my translation of what Bill is saying in step 10. He says, we're placed in a position of neutrality. We've entered a, uh, the world of the spirit. We commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past, but we're not cured. And we have a daily reprieve. A daily reprieve, certainly from our addiction, from the obsession that we're going to be looking at deeply here in the problem of the mind. But the daily reprieve comes because we treat our unmanageability, the spiritual malady, which is the spiritual shield that makes us invulnerable to the attack of the obsession and the delusion. If those words have very little meaning to you right now, they'll have a lot more meaning to you in a couple of weeks as we thrash out what Bill says in the big book and my interpretation of it. Powerless. All right, we become brain dead to that word, powerless. 
substitute a word or a phrase that gives it a little bit more heft in terms of your thought, thinking and feeling and experience. I like the term no choice. Once I start, I have no choice, I will continue. Once I stop on my own power, I will not stay stopped. I do not have the power to stay stopped on my own power. That's the whole point of this next part that we're gonna look at. And Bill's very clear, self-knowledge and even knowledge of the dynamics that we're going to be discussing will not help you. In the sense of a resolution to the obsession. It will certainly help you as a motivator to continue with the work so that you have a spiritual solution to a spiritual problem and therefore are given a shield to protect you from vulnerability to that obsession. My model, as I've hammered home, probably you're getting tired of hearing it, the model that I use that we have a body as a human being and that we have a mind that makes us human and we have free will that makes us human. But this is the model that I learned, at least my interpretation, through doing the steps, not only through doing step one and seeing in fact that is the model to unpack and understand and experience step one, but it's the model for all of the steps and each of the steps. And you'll absorb more of the understanding of that as we go through each of the steps. And I continue to repeat the explanation of the dynamic of the step through this model. This is my lens that I will use. And it made it so much easier, but it took 10 years for me to have a complete experience with step one, 10 years. I looked at addiction, of course, in the hospital before I ever had a problem that I was aware of. And they asked me to do an inventory of that. And I decided that I had a problem with alcohol. I had never seen it before. I didn't know it was a problem of the body and the mind. And I didn't know that for four years in AA. I didn't know that I had a problem of the spirit, a problem of the willpower. And that was in my 10th year of sobriety doing this work the third time. I came to understand the difference between addiction, substance and process addiction and unmanageability for the very first time. I'm not saying it's gonna take you 10 years because I'm saying that in fact, I'm going to give you the uh, advantage of seeing what I saw over a 10 year period, you're gonna see it over about a 10 week period in terms of the step one. Addiction we've talked about, substance and process. It's a professional distinction. It's not mine, it comes out of the world of recovery and treatment. 
substance, obviously, alcohol, drugs, and food. Process addiction, everything else. At the very least, it's all about brain mechanisms. Two parts of step one. I like to build a context so that you know where we're going, where we've been, and what the point of today's conversation and discussion is about. And we looked at allergy in the doctor's opinion. He said, there's something wrong with our mind. There's something wrong with our body. He focused on the body problem. He said, abstinence is the only solution. Now that becomes really tricky when you get into food. It really becomes very tricky when you get into process addiction. And that's why your shared experience was so important and will continue to be important. But today we're gonna to look at the mind problem. Bill unpacks it in pages 23 to 43, which I'm gonna go over specifically in a minute. He, he says the mind isn't healthy. Please hear this. Insane in the big book has a unique definition. You remember the craving word in the big book, in the doctor's opinion? that had a special definition you won't find in a dictionary. The use of the word insane in the big book you will not find in a dictionary necessarily. It normally is connected to psychology and psychiatry. Something about mental or emotional illness, a losing touch with reality. That's not what it means in the big book. And we'll see that next week when we do the work that will be assigned for next week, Bill gives us a wonderful definition on page 37. I'm not going to look at it right now. But what I want you to know is that this comes from the Latin sanus. You can see it the way it's parsed on the screen. S-A-N-U-S is the Latin word sanus. It's a noun in Latin, which means health. And when you put an I-N in front of it, it means not, not healthy. That's what insanity in the big book in step one means. That's what insanity in step two means. Returned, restored to sanity doesn't mean that it's going to deal with our psychiatric or psychological problems. Please. That's naive and actually ignorant. What it means is what Bill Wilson means by the term unhealthy thinking. Now in his terms, it means that we're subject to an obsession, meaning the mind is hijacked by a thought. And unfortunately, the thought, the content of the thought is a delusion. But we don't know that we don't know and we can't see that we don't see. As an addict, every one of us here, it could be on a scale of one to 10, somebody's less severe, somebody's more severe, but the nature of the mental disease, the insanity that Bill Wilson is talking about is obsession and delusion. Obsession, a thought that takes possession of us without our consciousness and without our permission. Delusion, a thought whose content is a lie. The most common example that we hear in meetings about insanity, for instance, is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. 
that thought is the obsession. We really believe it. The content of the thought that it'll be different, meaning better, is a lie, a delusion. That comes out of all three of the people who contributed in a confluence back in the 30s to the origination of Alcoholics Anonymous, Dr. Silkworth with, as a psychiatrist, Frank Buckman as a Lutheran minister. He talked about using the six-step process for the transformation, the spiritual awakening, the enlightenment, the change in us that we've looked at in step 12 in appendix two of the back of the big book. And then later on, in a couple of weeks, we'll be taking a look at unmanageability, the problem of the will, the spiritual malady, and Carl Jung. And we're gonna face some of his work today um, in the assigned material. Carl Jung was the first person to send somebody who had an alcohol problem to find a spiritual experience. Bill Wilson calls him the spiritual father of Alcoholics Anonymous. Carl Jung is a psychiatrist, a student of Freud. Fortunately, Carl Jung was the person that Roland Hazard was introduced to, and Carl Jung had a spiritual orientation in contrast to Freud. And he talked about his spiritual experience as the solution to the problem. And so what we're looking at in step one, just as a recap, is a body problem, an allergy that produces the phenomenon of craving, an addiction and a compulsion, and the only solution is abstinence. The problem in the mind, it, we have a mental defect. There's something wrong with us. It's unique to addicts that we are hijacked by an obsession. A lie that we do not see as a lie, we really believe is the truth, and the only solution is to wake up and of course, the premise of the big book is that we wake up through in a relationship with power, which gives us then healthy thinking, right thinking, sanus, healthy thinking, sane thinking, based on reality, based on objective science, based on common sense observations. Okay, so now I want to take a look at, you've got the context, you've got the perspective. I want to take a look at the big book, pages 23 to 43. Well, 23 to 35, actually, today. For assignment uh, next time, we'll take a deep look at and unpack the pages 35 to 43 in the big book. The assignment includes taking a look at the two stories in that material. Jim's story, the car salesman that put a little whiskey in his milk, and Fred, the accountant. Now, why does Bill put two stories in there? I asked these questions. Why wasn't one story just enough? Well, as I took a deeper look at them, as I journeyed through the steps, I contrasted them and compared them, as I'm asking you to do. How are they the same and how are they different? What is the point they're making? And what is the different point each of them is making in contrast to the other? We'll take a look at that next week because it, it gives us a very 
clear then understanding of what we mean by obsession and delusion and the various kinds uh, that different people will experience. But going to page 23. So he says, if in fact the body were the only problem, I'm paraphrasing. I, I will paraphrase and I will quote, I'll try to distinguish when I'm doing that, but I may forget. So just follow, follow me along as well as you can on each page. Sometimes I'll be reading from the book. Sometimes I'll be commenting on my reading of the book. Now I'm commenting. He says, if the body were the problem, then just stop it. And all of us have an experience of stopping it. We stop for a period of time. It might be a weekend. It might be a week. It might be a month. It might be years or decades. But each of us has had the experience, certainly before we came to program, of not being able to stay stopped. So he says, that's really the problem. The problem is in the mind. Why do you start? Because of the havoc that it creates and the suffering yours and other people's. Why does it start? It says in that next, this, the middle paragraph, why do you take that first drink? Why do you take that first bite? Why do you put that gamble uh, debt down, uh, bet down? Uh, why do you uh, engage in the beginnings of a conversation about a new relationship? When in fact, you have a history of a disaster that's been tri triggered by the same kind of dynamics as that are, you're experiencing right now. He says here in that paragraph, there is the obsession that somehow someday they will beat the game. That's what I meant by what we use regularly in meetings and or with sponsor conversations. I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do. I, I do something thinking that it'll be different this time because I had a glass of buttermilk before I went out. I had a half a sandwich before I went out. I had two ounces of olive oil before I went out. No, no, these were experiments that I did so that I would in fact be protected from losing control. I was concerned enough about losing control, but not conscious that in fact it was a pattern with me. None of that ever worked, of course. Don't drink tequila tonight. Don't drink wine if you're going to drink beer. Don't drink wine or beer if you're going to drink hard liquor. Oh, those were all the rules I had. Of course, I never kept the rules. And even when I did, I lost control. Once the malady has a real hold, there is the obsession that somehow, someday, I will beat the game in a vague way. We sense that we're abnormal. I tried vitamins. I tried medication. I tried therapy. I tried religion. I tried prayer and meditation. I tried new age, everything. I tried human development, everything. Now, I wasn't consciously concerned about the drinking as much as I was about my, the suffering in my life. I never really connected those two in the same way I did after I did that inventory in the hospital program. Because I had strong will. I was very disciplined, very organized. Um, that's part of my nature. It's, not a, it's a gift that I have. It's not something that I've acquired from skill. 
And I could never figure out why my willpower wasn't strong enough. And he says at the bottom, if you're a real alcoholic, if you're a real addict, you have lost control, page 24. At a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, we pass into a state where the most powerful desire to stop is of absolutely no avail. To stay stopped, not to stop once you begin. We're making a distinction between the body and the mind here. The fact is that most addicts, I'm changing the words a little bit, but I'm reading from the paragraph, page 24. It's in italics, the big book way of highlighting. The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, this is 1939 he's writing this, have lost the power of choice in drink. See, Bill uses that term here, like I suggested at the beginning, as a substitute synonym for powerless. No choice. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are, un, we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week ago or a month ago or last night in my experience. We are without defense against the first drink. The night after I was bailed out of jail for drunk driving, I sat at my sofa in my living room table with a glass of scotch, figuring out what had gone wrong yesterday and how I'm going to deal with it. Never occurred to me that it was the fact the scotch was the problem. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. The one question that I've asked you to ask yourself, but not maybe as um, clearly and as directly as I'm asking you now in this exercise on the mind. After a period of abstinence for a day, a week, a conscious intention of abstinence from whatever your addiction is, a week, a month, a year, ten, a year, two years, whatever it is. After a period of abstinence, whatever the length is, even if it's 10 or 20 years, if you relapsed or when you relapsed, what were you thinking two minutes, within the two minutes before you relapse, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? What were you conscious of? What were you aware of? It's the only question. Everything else is prelude and story. There's only one question. What were you conscious of before you relapsed? It may be the answer, I wasn't conscious of anything. Or it may be I had the consciousness of this or that, and you'll hear all of the variety of observations that we make. I almost said excuses, but they're not. They're rationalizations, but they're not conscious rationalizations. We really think it, we really mean it, we really feel it. It's real. It's as real as I am sitting here talking to you right now. There is no, there is no or very little consciousness. That's where we talk about powerless. That's where we talk about no choice. If I could think about it and think it through, 
I would have power. And all the other sayings that go on in 12-step meetings about willpower and control. If you knew better, you'd do better. Not true. Sorry. This is powerless. This is no choice. If there's anything, including working the steps, if there's anything, including prayer and meditation, that you can do, you're not powerless. I'm going to stress that to the point that you're going to be very tired of hearing it from me. But I, I need you to really hear it in your soul. There's nothing that you can do. Now, you can prepare yourself. You can do the preconditions for grace. Those are my awkward words for what we do here in doing the steps. But even the big book says, you're not going to get it until you finish your ninth step. Yeah? Oh, there will be a promise in the third step of approximation. There will be a promise in the fifth step. Page 63 you can read the promises at the top of the page. Page 75, at the end of the fifth step, you can read the promises at the end of the page. There are approximations, but there's no guarantee of black and white. On pages 84 and 85, at the conclusion of the ninth step, at the beginning of the tenth step, it's black and white. We are placed in a position of neutrality. Doesn't get any clearer. It's not my interpretation. I just read English, and that's what it says. There is a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. Great image. If I invited you over to my house and you'd never been there, and we were excited to see one another, and I was making lunch or dinner for us, and we were chatting as we would do with a great energy, and we were just focused on enjoying one another's company and you leaned back against the counter and it happened to be where the stove was and the stove was on and you didn't see it and you put your hand on the hot, red hot grid. Well, you would startle yourself, of course, raise your hand off with a whoop. And uh, would you ever come in my house again and not know where the stove was or be unconscious of whether it's on or off? No, you, because that would have been a traumatic experience. That's why this metaphor is so perfect. And he uses it again later on when he talks about being in neutrality. Not putting our hand on the hot stove. It won't burn me this time, so here's how. That's the rationalization of the obsession. That's the blind spot that we have that is the problem of the mind. He's saying here, maybe you say this to yourself that it won't hurt me this time, a rationalization. But then he also says as an alternative, maybe you don't think at all about it. That was my experience. I made many resolutions. I quit for 30 days. I quit for 60 days. I quit for Lent. I quit one time for a 90-day human development program. But I picked up at the end of that dedicated time with very little thought about why I had quit in the first place or what the wonderful experience I had in my abstinence for that short period of time. 
none of that occurred to me. I just picked up because it smelled good or it felt good or there was a social situation and it would have been awkward for me not to drink. What sort of thinking, page 24, is fully established in individual, the alcoholic tendencies, placed himself beyond human aid and unless locked up, may die or go permanently insane. That's what Bill Wilson heard from Dr. Silkworth. He overheard Dr. Silkworth telling that to Lois on his third hospitalization. He drank anyway, because that information is not going to prevent a relapse. Page 25. Well, there is a solution. Well, that's the name of the chapter. Look up, look up at the top of the chapter. The page, it says there is a solution. Bill doesn't want to make it all dark. He does want to paint more, more uh, experience about the problem, but he, he wants to give us some hope. This is early hope. There is a solution. It's in italics. Almost none of us like the self-searching. That's part of the solution. Maybe that's the fourth step. The leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, maybe the fifth step, which the process requires. Don't tell me there aren't requirements in the big book, that they're only suggestions. Hello, page 25. The process requires for its successful consummation, for its completion. We had come to believe in that we are hopeless and, and our life is futile. This is what I'm attempting to have you experience in your journey through the first step. Not just an understanding of the problem of the body, not just an understanding of the problem of the mind, but a literal collapse of any idea, any lurking notion that you're going to stay sober on your own power. We have to pick up this simple kit of spiritual tools. What a great image, but even a more powerful image. We are rocketed into a fourth dimension. Now in the day, 1939, what Bill means by that is the spirit, the, the, the world of the spirit. The three dimensions are height, width, and depth. The, the, the measurement of the material world. The fourth dimension is the unmeasurable, that is, the spirit world. And he talks about the spiritual experience here with an asterisk. We've looked at that as we began our journey way back in January. What is a spiritual awakening? What is a spiritual experience? You can review that if you want on Appendix 2. We have to have deep and effective spiritual experiences which will revolutionize our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. God has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves the very definition of a spiritual awakening as we parsed it previously. So he says, you're at the fork in the road. 
if you're an addict. You're at the fork in the road. There, there's no middle of the road solution. There is either the road of addiction, the darkness to the left, or the road of freedom and the light to the right. Two alternatives, one to go to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation. Most people choose that route by conscious decision or by default. It's unfortunate. I don't wanna give any numbers because I don't think we have any really valid numbers. But it's not 50% that make it. It's way less. The other is to accept spiritual help. I'm preaching to the choir because here you are committed to a series of weekly meetings and the work in between. This we did because we honestly wanted to and were willing to make the effort. We wanted to do it and we're willing to make the effort. Each of us will approach it in our own way. We don't have any rules. We don't have any time frame. We have some suggestions based on the big book and my own personal experience. Now, this story here is about Roland Hazard, and I believe I've told it before. And that is uh, Roland Hazard uh, in the early 30s, before he ever met Bill Wilson, before any thought was of a program of recovery. This was in 1931, 1932. A very rich man went over to Switzerland to spend a year with Carl Jung. His name is there. As I mentioned, he's the spiritual father. He's the one who told uh, Roland Hazard to go find a spiritual experience. And Roland Hazard found the Oxford group. He thought if he got some information, profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind and its hidden springs, he would be fine. I and mean, he's working with the second best psychiatrist in the world at that time, Carl Jung, the first being Freud. He had no control. Why was this? He begged the doctor to tell him. And the doctor said, you're utterly hopeless. I'm giving you highlights from page 26. But he says on page 27, this is Bill's comment. This guy is clean and sober and will stay so if he remains willing to maintain a certain simple attitude. That word is crucial in step two. We'll look at it again on page 55. With this attitude, you cannot fail, he says. And we'll, we'll parse that, find out what does Bill Wilson in the big book mean by the proper attitude. Carl Jung said to this guy, you need to find a spiritual experience. And the guy said, great, I'm going to go back to church. And he said, you're not listening, young man. I'm making this up, of course, because nobody had it recorded. I'm... Um, leveraging off of the material in the big book and other sources. <laughs> he said, I didn't say go back to church. I didn't say find religion. I said, you need to find a spiritual experience, a vital spiritual experience. Listen how he explains it. Occurrences that are phenomena, the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements, ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. Do you hear the echo of the set aside prayer and, and attitude in that? That's where this comes from. 
from the origins of, uh, of the work coming out of the mouth of Dr. Carl Jung and Bill Wilson. Page 28. This is the terrible dilemma in which our friend found himself. And then he had this extraordinary experience as a result of the Oxford group six steps. We in our turn sought the same escape with all the desperation of a drowning person. Another powerful metaphor. I like also the quicksand metaphor. I'm out in the Mojave Desert for the people in Southern California that has a particular meaning. The Mojave Desert, just desolate. Hundreds of miles of just sand, very little vegetation. And picture yourself out in the middle of that desert, or the Sahara is a more prominent image in everybody's mind. And, and rather than just hills of sand, it's quicksand. And every time you spring your foot out of the quicksand, there's a sucking sound and you put it down again and it just, and that's the addiction. That's the, the pace that we come to at, in the last years of our addiction. That, Tremendous desperation of moving forward, but so stuck, wanting to move forward. What seemed at first a flimsy reed has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. Again, he's filling us with hope here. There is a solution. A new life has been given us, a design for living. Now, please pay attention to this next paragraph on page 28. Bill is really telling us that there are a multitude of ways that we can discover this power. We have no desire to convince anyone that there is only one way which faith can be acquired. Clearly, we need to know what faith is, and we'll take another deeper look at that in step two. All of us, whatever our race, creed, or color, are the children of a living creator with whom we may form a relationship upon simple and understandable terms. That's the essence of step three, a decision to have a relationship. Again, we will do a deep dive in that so that you'll have not only understanding of what the big book says about step three, it is not surrender. The word surrender is not in the big book. Step three is anything but surrender. Step one is surrender. Hopelessly defeated, I give up, I surrender, but not step three. As soon as we are willing and honest enough to try, do you hear an echo? This is a constant refrain in the big book. Willing and honest. In fact, on page 58, the chapter starts how it works, and he spends an entire page talking about rigorous honesty and the capacity for it. It's the, it's the, it's the, requ the, the requirement, the precondition. Honesty, what does that mean? My sponsor said transparency. I said, what does that mean? Your insides and your outsides match. I still didn't know what he meant. That was my first year of recovery. I did not know what that meant until I was five years sober after I did a step four and five so that I really understood the transparency, rigorous honesty. This should be an entirely personal affair. 
we're going to give you at the bottom, page 28. He gives us this roadmap of, of how the book is going to be organized, much like this is where I learned to, to do what I do. I give you a look over the shoulder at where we've been. I talk about where we are right now, and I look forward to seeing where we're going so that you have a context. In the following chapter, there appears a, an explanation of alcoholism. Well, the chapter's entitled More About Alcoholism. I'm a big book literalist and fundamentalist. Let's get real clear and real specific. In the following chapter, an explanation of alcoholism, it's called More About Alcoholism because we're not done with pounding us with the no choice powerless concept so that we can have an experience and not just understand it. Then once you're ready, Bill is going to give us chapter four because he thinks he's done with step one, but not on my experience. We're going to pause there and do some work out of chapter four, and then we're going to do some work out of chapter five to in fact unpack unmanageability. And I'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. You can see there's lots more ahead of us. Further on, meaning after chapter four, further on, clear-cut directions are given showing how we recovered. Notice, recovered, past tense, as I've parsed it, a problem of the body and the mind that has a solution. We've recovered. We're not cured, but we have been given the gift. Not, we haven't earned it. We haven't done the steps and earned it. No, we haven't done the steps and precipitated it. Nope. We've done the steps as a precondition to finding power and somehow there's a magical connection. I do the steps and I find power. There's a blank spot in the middle of that. I don't know how that works. Willingness and grace. And I've talked about that before. But he says further on, clear-cut directions. And then he says, these are followed by 42 personal stories. Oh, well, further on isn't just chapter 5 then. It's chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 further on because the stories are after page 164. So the clear-cut directions are given showing how we recovered is the completion of the steps and the practicing of 10, 11, and 12 principles in all our affairs, chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, as I've described them before. But here's a key now for step two. Each individual describes in his own language from these stories and from his own point of view, the way this person establishes his relationship with God. Notice how personal that is. We do not have a dogma. We do not have a theology. We have nothing in the big book or in the 12-step fellowship that you have to believe. We have a few suggestions for behavior. What actually has happened in their lives is witnessed to here. Our hope is that many alcoholic men and women, addict men and women, desperately in need will see these pages and believe that it is only by fully disclosing ourselves, hello, rigorous honesty, hello, transparency, fully disclosing ourselves and our problems that they will be persuaded to say, yes, 
I am definitely an addict. And I must have this thing that is this relationship with power. Turn the page. More about alcoholism. Many people re have this um, material read in a, in a meeting, page 30. It becomes, at least in AA meetings that I've attended. And again, once we become so used to hearing something, we become brain dead to it. So let me take it a little slower here. Line by line now, I'm not going to skip around. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real addicts. I'm just asking. I'm just unpacking the big book. Ask yourself, are you convinced that you're an addict? And it's okay if you say, not yet, or no, I'm certainly not. All right, great, stay with us. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. It is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. Well, this may ring a bell with lots of people. I wanted to drink normally. I wanted, and I thought I did. I just crashed through the, grade, uh, the guardrails every once in a while. The idea that somehow, someday, I will control and enjoy my drinking was my great obsession of an abnormal drinker. I'm sure you looked up the word obsession, and if you haven't, please do. And have um, some definitions so that you really understand what it's talking about. It's a thought. An obsession's a thought. Not all thoughts are an obsession. It's really important to know that. When a person says as a sponsor, if you have the thought of a drink, drop to your knees and pray. He's talking about a thought, not an obsession. If you have a thought of a drink, call your sponsor. He's talking about a thought, not an obsession. Because an obsession is the kind of thought that fills the entire screen of our consciousness. There's no other room for any other thought. We don't see around the screen. We don't see around the thought. We don't have any room or capacity for any other consciousness. An obsession takes possession of us without our permission and without our consciousness. That's what I mean by no choice. Lots of these are my own words, my own phrases to try to communicate my experience and my understanding of what the big book is talking about. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Well, down below he's talking about a delusion. I'll get there in a minute. But what's the difference between an illusion and a delusion? Again, not scientific definition, but my Herb's definition. An illusion is a misperception of an external reality. And the best uh, example is when you're in perhaps Las Vegas and you're at the parking lot and it's 110 and you see your car, but there's a puddle next to the car. And when you come next to your car, there's no puddle. It was a mirage. That's an illusion, a misrepresentation of an external reality. Your senses lie to you about what's outside of you. A delusion, on the other hand, is a lie that's inside of you. It's a thought that is a lie that I believe to be the truth. 
A delusion is the misrepresentation inside of me of a thought or a feeling or a memory. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost self that we were an addict. He says right here, page 30, please listen to this. This is the first step in recovery. Wow, that's a much stronger articulation than on page 59. On page 59, Bill says, admitted we were powerless over alcohol. That's timid compared to this. Listen to this again. We learned, that's a process, that we had to fully concede, not just admit, to our innermost self, not just intellectual, academic, oh, I understand. This is the first step in recovery. Now listen to the hammer. The delusion, the lie, that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. They're not gentle. The delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. What does it mean presently maybe? A curious phrase, probably from 1939. We don't speak that way today. The delusion that we are like other people or ever will be. Once I'm abnormal, I will never be normal. Yes, I will have recovered, but I'm always susceptible and vulnerable to the obsession. And the only thing that's going to protect me from the obsession is a spiritual shield, a relationship with power. A relationship with the light will protect me from the darkness. You won't find those words in the big book, but it's my perception, my attempt to describe what we're talking about here. The delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. Isn't that an echo reminiscent of what he said on page 14? Oh, we haven't looked at that yet, but I'm pointing you to it now and you can take a look at it because I will quote it many times. It's one of my most favorite phrases in the big book at the top. Simple, but not easy. A price has to be paid. It meant the destruction of self-centeredness. Well, that'll be so relevant in unmanageability because that's the nature of unmanageability is selfishness and self-centeredness. I must turn in all things to the father of light who presides over us all. That's where some of my metaphors and, re and references come from. I must turn in all things to the father of light who presides over us all. That beginning turn is step two where I decide that there is light with a capital L and it is the commitment we make in step three, a decision to turn to the light from the darkness. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking, lost the ability. We don't have the capacity. No real alcoholic ever noticed it's in italics recovers control. I'm sure I've mentioned before, or you've heard before, the story about the cucumber and the pickle. The cucumber is placed in a quart of brine. It becomes a pickle. 
How soon after you take the pickle out of the brine, put it on a windowsill in the sunshine, does it restore to becoming a cucumber? Uh, that would be never. Once a pickle, always a pickle. Once an addict, always an addict. I was an addict with my first drink, alcoholic with my first drink. I lost control at 12 years old. And I had the pattern of losing control for the next 30 years. But it was intermittent, so it was not observable by me. It was observable by other people, by the law and by the hospitals. But nobody ever confronted me with it. My wife was quite different. She grew into it like the cucumber in the brine. And by age 35, she was a chronic alcoholic drinking every day. See, all of our stories are different, uh, at, at least potentially different from one another. There are obviously lots of similarities and categories. All of us felt at times that we were gaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, progressive, which led in time to pitiful and incompre incomprehensible demoralization. Well, that's why you're here, of course. Not because you have experienced it recently, because it may be in the past. This is what brought you into a 12-step program. We are convinced to a person that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over a considerable period, we get worse, never better. And then he has this very dramatic image of people who have lost their legs. Please hold that one. Powerless, no choice. Once I've lost my legs. Now today, of course, there's lots of rehabilitation and people can walk again with uh, robotic devices but get the image that he has here in 1939, the absolute black and white. Once a pickle, always a pickle. We have tried, page 31, every imaginable remedy. In some cases, there have been brief recovery. Where was some, some success in stopping and having periods of success with abstinence? But there is no such thing as making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. This is the big book, 1939. And quite frankly, there have been lots of efforts and proclamations in science and psychology and chemistry uh, to the contrary. And none of them have ever proved out. Real alcoholics are not going to believe they're in this class. Every form of self-deception and experimentation, this is the mental problem. They try to prove themselves exceptions to the rule. He uses the term here. Um, oh no, I guess he doesn't hear yet. So he gives us all of these methods and I'm not going to go over them. You can read those methods and identify with whatever parts you want. Uh, I, I think I indicated some of the methods I use to try to manage my drinking and prevent uh, losing control. None of it ever worked. I never realized it didn't work because I kept trying different methods. We do not like to pronounce any individual an alcoholic. Please hear that also. We don't tell anybody they're an alcoholic. We don't tell anybody they're an addict. We help them ask the right questions. That's why I'm uh, very prone in my methodology to give you worksheets with questions uh, and uh, a 20 question list for a, a addiction. 
so that you can ask yourself these questions in all honesty, looking at your experience. I'm not invested in your identification as an addict. I'm not invested in your recovery as an addict. I mean, that's your business. I'm invested in bringing that information to you and the opportunity for you to make your own decisions, but you can't make a decision if you don't know. If you don't have any information, you can't make a decision. If you have the information, you can make the wrong information. You can make the wrong decision, but you have uh, at least half a chance of making the right decision, the correct, the healthy decision. Bill uh, has a very odd uh, recommendation here. It's not a recommendation as much as it, it's an alternative. He said, if you have any doubt, try some controlled drinking. Well, I know people that have had that given to them as a recommendation and they've tried it. One comes to mind <clears throat> after five years of sobriety, he was going through this work and he wasn't convinced that actually he was an alcoholic. He thought maybe he had been immature and, and, uh, needed to grow up and have some life experiences and the information he got from AA and he's five years sober. He didn't really believe he was an alcoholic. So this man taking him through step one says, well, why don't you try some controlled drinking? Well, that very day he got a 502 in jail overnight. When they released him, he went out and he got another 502 the next day. Well, I guess he was convinced two in a row, two days in a row. All right. Why is this a, a very dangerous conversation, exploration. Because if in fact you're an alcoholic and you have the allergy that produces the craving, then you don't know what's going to happen when you take that first drink. So I never give this recommendation. I never give this conversation. I never give this suggestion. Try some controlled anything. It's dangerous because of the allergy. If you are an addict, and that's what you're experimenting to try to determine the truth of, it could trip the trigger and uh, there could be devastating results for you and other people. Now, three pages later, he gives us a much better recommendation. Try not using for a year. Well, a real addict won't be able to do that. A real alcoholic won't be able to do that. After a day or a week or a month or three or six, there'll be some reason that they will in fact pick up again, usually. Page 32. He talks about a guy who quit. He was highly motivated. You know somebody like that. You may be somebody like that. You were highly motivated and you quit for a long time. This guy quit at age 30 and he quit for his, because of his job and his career and his ambition, his, his, the, the, the kind of lifestyle he wanted. He quit. He wasn't addicted to alcohol yet, but he was having problems. He quit at age 30, didn't have another drink until he retired at age 55. Well, as it says here on page 33, within four years after retirement, he was dead because he lost control. He had all the means and all the time to get a handle on it. But of course there wasn't AA or he wasn't exposed to it. And this is where, he, where I use that pickle metaphor, if that's the right term. 
page 33, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. If we are planning to drink, there must be no reservation of any kind nor any lurking notion. Again, please hear that. If you have reservation and a lurking notion, just hold it. Don't take any action on it. I'm absolutely not asking you to experiment. I'm asking you to experiment with doing this work, asking these questions, doing this reading, attending these presentations and participating in the dialogue and wait till we finish the first step before coming to any conclusion as to whether you're an addict or not. And I mean all of the first step, not just the first half of the first step about addiction, but the second half of the first step about the spiritual malady. And by the time we come to the conclusion of that, I think everybody will have enough understanding and awareness, of course, and knowledge, but they hopefully will have some minimum, maybe even more than that experience with, okay, I'm really screwed. And that's not a line from the big book, by the way. He says on page 33 that we have a peculiar mental twist and that we're helpless. These are just two highlights that I have. Lots of words there, you'll read them on your own. Peculiar mental twist, because we're talking about the problem of the mind, we're talking about the obsession, we're talking about the delusion. These are features of an unhealthy mind in the terminology of the big book, Insanity. Page 34, as we look back, we feel we had gone on drinking many years our addiction many years beyond the point we could quit on our own willpower. If anyone questions whether he has entered this dangerous area, let him try leaving his addiction alone for a year. There's the healthy recommendation, the healthy suggestion. If you have any doubt, then stop your addiction for one year. Make a commitment. It's only one year. Make a commitment. Whatever your addiction is, don't do it for a year. Intentionally don't do it. And tell someone about your commitment and report to them daily or weekly or monthly as an accountability partner. See what happens. If you can make it a year, you're probably not an addict. You might just have unhealthy habits. Not enough information. Not enough maturity. With a little information and a better habit and and uh, more maturity, you might be able to, whatever the addiction is, participate. For those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. Number 34, page 34. We're assuming, of course, the reader desires to stop. I'm, I'm in conversation with people all the time who come to me and they want help. And my first question is, do you want to quit? Well, let's not get too rash here. No, no, I, I want to learn how to control it. I, I, I don't want the suffering that goes. No, no, please. What do you do to kind of like manage your drinking? <laughs> if they don't want to stop, I don't work with them. Yeah, if they don't want to stop, I don't work with them. If they think they might want to stop or they want to explore it, I will work with them. We're assuming, of course, the reader desires to stop. Now, whether they can quit on a non-spiritual basis, depending on whether they've lost the power of choice. So he's talking about that progressive illness for the person who isn't 
genetically predisposed where like myself at age 12, my first drink was a drunk. People like my wife who had grown into the habit. Now she was genetically predisposed. How, how else would you explain Mary Catherine Bridget Flanagan for God's sake from the South side of Chicago? Yeah, of course, both of her parents were alcoholics. I didn't know that when we got married. <laughs> I'm not sure she knew her mother was an alcoholic. She knew her father was. We didn't know much about any of that. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it. The utter inability to leave it alone. The simplicity of the language. The utter inability to leave it alone. No matter how great the necessity or the wish, the job, the marriage, the health, the freedom in terms of the court, the legal. How then shall we help our readers determine whether they are one of us? The experiment of quitting for a period of time will be helpful, but we're going to give you a much better opportunity here on page 35. And this is where we're going to end today. We will describe the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking. Remember my, my challenge, my question to you? After a period of abstinence, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? What were you aware of within the first two minutes, the two minutes prior to engaging in your addiction? The mental state that precedes a relapse into drinking, for obviously this is the crux of the problem. Page 35, what sort of thinking dominates the addict alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? Friends who have reasoned with him after a spree which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he? Of what is he thinking? The problem is of the mind, the problem is of the thinking, the problem is of the thought, the problem is, is of the imagination and the memory, the problem in the mind. Next week, we'll look at Jim and Fred and bring it to conclusion with the exercise on the um, in the way of life document on the on the mind. So that uh, you can take a look at that also uh, in preparation uh, for our discussion uh, next week. So read uh, pages 35 to 43 and try to understand the two stories, how they're the same, making the same point and how they're different. And then your own personal experience. And that's why it's really important for you to get really specific the year that you had the problem, the month, the day, the time, the circumstances. I want you to have an understanding of the context and the story. I'm not going to be interested in your relating the story, as you know, because the only thing that's really important is that two minutes before the relapse. What were you thinking? What were you conscious of? What were you feeling? What were you aware of? My question, and it of course, if it's not appropriate, let me know, uh, is self-loathing. I don't know. I'm wondering if it's an addiction, a symptom, an obsession, a character defect, and does it really matter? Should I do worksheets on it um, or just get to step nine? 
Well, um, no, you, you shouldn't just get to step nine, although yes, get to step nine in the fashion that you're going to get there. Obviously, everything we want is after step nine. Everything we want is after we finish our step nine amends. So, but going back to self-loathing, I don't know, but you're, you're the one that needs to come up with an idea as to whether it's an addiction for you or not. It could be an unhealthy habit. It could be family of origin conditioning. There's so many psychological dimensions of that. It could have been some type of traumatic experience that you've had. Um, so you're the one that has to come up with a, a, an idea of addiction, repetitive behavior, behavior, not, not thoughts. Now, it could be repetitive thoughts and behavior. I don't know. I'd be willing to change my definition. Uh, which uh, leads to negative consequences over which I have no control. And um, so you determined that. And then what were some of the other questions you added with that, please? They were good questions. Oh, I, I was, I mean, I was wondering if it was an addiction symptom, obsession or character defect, and then does it really matter? You know, should I do? Oh, it matters. It matters. It matters. Absolutely. Okay. It matters <laughs> for you to come to grips with what is it? All right. How does it manifest in you? What is it that you want as an alternative? I, I'm very mm, supportive of a creative approach to using your words and your suffering in the methodology that I'm offering you in the, in the framework of alcoholism and the 12 steps. And you'll see that as you have in the fourth step. If you have grief, if you have regret, if you have remorse, if you have sadness, if you have depression, if you have anger, if you have fear, I, I'm saying, yeah, you don't have to use the word, quote, resentment, close quote, just because the big book does. If your source of suffering is any of that panoply of words that I just use and more, use those words. And people have embraced that and had a powerful experience of an insight as well as a... Um, resolution to their sources of suffering. Thank you. I, the, the one conclusion that I, if I've come to this before, I don't know, but in the last couple of days, I definitely have no power whatsoever over my self-loathing. Uh, so anyway, so yeah. thank you. Well, um, have that as a focus for resolution. Uh, and keep us informed as you have, please, no, I'm, I'm asking you, because it's very innovative, it's very creative, it's very different, and I would like to hear your progress as you experience the different aspects of uh, what's going to happen to you as a result of uh, the application of the things that you'll be learning and experiencing, all right? Okay, thank you. No, thank you very Thanks, much. everybody. Yeah. I want to ask a quick question um, regarding the uh, historical connections between Carl Jung and the guy and Ebby Thatcher and Bill. Well, um, you could uh, take a look at uh, page eight in the Way of Life document, and I have a matrix there that shows the confluence of each of those, Dr. Silkworth, Carl Jung, and Frank Bookman. Um, in terms of the years and their contribution 
very independent of one another. I don't believe any of them ever met one another, but uh, Roland Hazard, the person I referenced today, uh, meeting Carl Jung and treated by Carl Jung, went to New York and found the Oxford Group. He reached out to Ebby Thatcher. Ebby Thatcher reached out to Bill. Bill reached out to Bob and the rest is history. Okay, great. That's what I was looking for. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks. Great. On page 30, I've always wondered what this sentence meant. And I want to hear your thoughts on it. We were convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type. What does we were convinced to a man mean? Oh, um, it's just language that says to, to a person, each individual. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's a, it's awkward language from the 30s, but it just means that each individual was convinced to a person, it means that so that today we would say, we're convinced to a person, he, he just used it differently. Yeah. Okay. I always got hung up on that because it was confusing. Yes. Yeah. Well, because it's, it's language that we don't use anymore. I mean, that was like what? 60, 70, 80 years ago, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, we, and, we, and we try to be more general neutral, gender neutral too. And of course, Bill didn't have that culture when he wrote the big book, so, yep. Okay. Thank Speaking you. Speaking about gender neutral, what do you think about the um, talk of changing? It'll never body. happen. Um, I hope it doesn't. My no, opinion. it won't happen. It won't happen. It can't happen. If you, first of all, it would have been wonderful to be gender, gender neutral. The big book would be much easier to read and much more accessible to people and much more balanced if it was gender neutral. Absolutely. I agree 100%. But if you change one word for a really good reason, you can change another word for a not so good reason. The big book will never be changed. I hope it doesn't, and I agree too. Yeah. This comes up like every five or seven years. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. In the same way that different people attempt to have a cure for alcoholism, if you take this medication or if you take this procedure or if you join this group, you'll have a cure for your alcoholism. And unfortunately, the authors, uh, in my memory, one of them especially, ended up as a drunk driver killing some people and ended with a 30-year prison sentence. So it doesn't work. This is what works. Yeah. Now, I said that as if I know something about the general service office, and I don't, other than the philosophy that has been restated multiple times when this subject has come up. But I'm not involved in the internal structure or organization or administration of the general service office. It's, it's not my calling. So I speak from my opinion rather than from my knowledge. Okay. Wanted to make sure that that was clear. All right. Understood. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Thanks a bunch. You bet. I was privy to a conversation recently between two people um, debating whether or not a sex addiction is real or just mm-hmm. something made up by Hollywood. Me, myself being Al-Anon, yeah. stayed the hell out of the conversation, not my, don't yeah. have a dog in that fight. But yeah. 
you, we have it listed in yeah. the worksheet. Do you have any thoughts on it? Uh, well, uh, yes, I, I have some thoughts, but they're more again in the line of opinions based on exposure and experience that comes mostly from my mm, time in Culver City with the a workshop that I began there 10, 15 years ago. And it's very prevalent on the West side, the sex addiction. And there's like three different, uh, different sex addiction or relationship addiction or love addiction programs, each one with their own protocol and definitions of abstinence. I know that much. I don't know whether it's an addiction or not. I believe it is. I know some people that own and run sex addiction institutes. These are incredibly competent, professional, credible people. And so I'm, I'm, I'm leaning in the direction that it is, yes, a legitimate addiction. Is some of the language or some of the conversation about it by other people um, informed or accurate? I, I would probably speculate, probably not. Yeah, no, I, I believe it's a very, I, I know some people that have gone through treatment and are in the 12 step, and they're, they're, they were in my workshops. They're astounding people, and they're very articulate about the comparability to their issues in the same, not the same vocabulary, but the same dynamics with their own vocabulary that we talk about with regard to alcohol, drugs, and food in terms of a substance addiction. Yeah. And that's where the comment that I, I, I might have made here, or I certainly made in one of my workshops that normally I focus on behavior because that's a very measurable thing, not on thoughts, not on feelings and not on memory and imagination, but they're the people that open my mind up to the sex addiction, relationship addiction, love addiction dynamic, which is very rooted in memory and feelings and thoughts and imagination. And so I had to expand my own consciousness about the nature of addiction and the application of these principles from the big book. Yeah, thank you. Um, my question was, was this, this happened to me twice in the last couple of weeks where I've had um, someone who is a mentor to me, big time mentor. And then um, someone who I always, admired in a different way. He was a colleague of mine when I was in college. This individual and a mentor that I had had recently had told me, um, one of them said like, yeah, I don't go to meetings anymore. And the other said, um, yeah, I drink and do drugs every now and then, but I'm, but I'm really happy. And it, it's kind of a mind, uh, well, they're not addicts. I mean, the, the guy who drinks so, and uses occasionally is not an addict. And if he was in the program before, it just seems like such an odd... The rooms are filled with non-addicts. True, okay. Because they like the social environment or the spiritual orientation. Oh, yeah. That's a problem, though, because the real alcoholic comes in and says, that guy doesn't have to do everything I have to do. Oh, my God, what's, what's wrong with me? Well, that's because you're an addict and he's not. Or slash, I might be cured like this guy. Yeah, you might be. Yeah, maybe. Probably not in your lifetime. Maybe not this year. <laughs> or this <laughs> lifetime. Or this lifetime. Come on. Let's hope. Yeah, no, no. You're going to change that phrase because there is 
for me, even if there was a pill or an injection that I could take that would make me impervious to alcohol, where I could drink like normal people, I wouldn't do that because my daily life is so much better than any drink experience I ever had. Yeah. yeah. I love the clarity. I love the consciousness. Yeah. yeah. I, I can't say that you said when I first came in, you know, yeah. a life beyond your wildest dreams. And I'm like, okay, people come, come on. Yeah. Yeah. On. Yeah, yeah, I found yeah. That year one was yeah. much better than year, you know, zero. Yeah. Year right. two was exponentially better than, yeah. you, know, you know, God willing coming up on, you know, three years. And it, it really is. Um, yeah. It's, it well, is it's, it's, um, it's interesting that you, you measure your life and you're looking at me. I'm 80. All right. And you're not. Not 80. No. And I have 37 years and you have three don't measure your current experience. Yours, I consider anybody under five years a newcomer. Yeah, and I feel like I, I feel like I really don't know yeah. what I don't know and don't see what it is. Yeah, but you're you're on it. You're on it. But what I'm trying to do is not dismiss what you just said. I'm trying to open up the panoramic view that there is so much more that you don't know, and you be prepared to be surprised. Be prepared to be surprised regularly especially in the next several years, if you continue the work that you're doing now. All right. Cool. Thank you. Thank you very much. You know, when we're doing um, inventory or whatever it's called and going back in time and listing all the, that's a hard trigger. Yes, it is. Okay. That's all I wanted to say. <laughs> That's why I recommend that you in the morning, every morning, pray the set aside prayer to have a connection of a commitment of an open mind and open heart. And then anytime you sit down actually to do the work that you again, intentionally pray that prayer. You don't go into surgery without an anesthetic. So would it be would you advise like you're doing that you're writing your things and it's like okay this is too much like i gotta i gotta take a break man absolutely and that'll be even more true when we get into the fourth step i could only work 15 minutes to 30 minutes maximum on any one of the issues i had to leave it and go away for a, a, a an hour or two just to get my sense of balance and bearing again, and then go back and sit down and do some more. It's deep work. So do I have to keep revisiting this in my future? Like, Why do you even think about that? Okay, well, I don't know. It's well, you don't have good. to write the script because you just have to live one day at a time. What a concept. That's lucky for me. Yeah, you live today and don't you worry about tomorrow. It'll take care of itself. And that's totally my experience, by the way. That's not Pollyannish. That's totally 100% my experience. Right. I, didn't, I didn't get there in my first year. <laughs> I got there about my, certainly my fifth year began it and my 10th year brought it to a, a wholesome, a wholesome sort of holistic view. You know, when I was thinking about 
the thing about a food addict is because I do believe that the first time I ate sugar and flour, I ate it addictively. My mother noticed that I ate differently than her other kids from when I was so, I mean, I remember her admonishing me at age four. So, well, we don't, um, we don't know, you know, and yeah, all right. yeah. go ahead. What's your question? Well, the, the, it was, it, yeah. And so, oh, I know what I wanted to say is I would read that part in the big book that was, um, you know, go out and try some controlled eating. Yeah. And I also, I too would never tell a food addict to do that. I've seen, I mean, I myself, when I relapsed was gone for more than three years. I knew a woman that was yeah. gone for 15 years. And I certainly have plenty of women that have never come back. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the and I, problem. You, yeah, you're nailing it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's all. I just, was. Oh, I thought, I'm, well, maybe alcoholics can do that. Yeah, food no, addicts no, can't. No, no, no. It, it's wonderful that because people need to hear it from different people because there's different sounds, different words, different resonance that you make and they may hear you and they didn't hear me. So no, no, yeah. that's a wonderful reinforcement of what's very important teaching in the big book. I had a friend back in the day who was a, uh, a retired mother superior Yes. who one day on New Year's Day decided she would eat for three days. <laughs> And she came back 15 years later. And with, I mean, you can imagine the health difficulties at that age that happened to a person with putting on, you know, a hundred and but how many ever pounds. That's the point I, I mentioned and you're reinforcing about the trigger. Once you pull the trigger, you don't know what's going to happen. No. No, I have a friend who says you ask the gorilla to dance and the gorilla tells you when you're going to stop dancing. That's right. That's right. Just, that's exactly. Yeah. Right. No, it's a and, and that's a very powerful image when you get over the laughter of it. It's ridiculous, yeah. and and yet underneath it is wow. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yep. Thanks. Yeah. So anyway. Yep. Okay. How many people have you had come to you who said they had one of these York peppermint patty mountaintop breath of God? Uh, experiences like building yeah yeah excellent question and I'm thinking about it right now and I would say in 37 years less than 10 now in the same sense that Bill had at this monument do people talk about having an experience oh yeah all the time but it's it's not that kind of mountain top lightning bolt thing that Bill describes and he had it. Um, yeah. And so it, it might just be the demographics of the people that I'm exposed to, but I would say less than 10 in the thousands of people I've been exposed to. Well, I just wanted to say, I know it, he had that experience, Bill, but I, you know, from what I've heard, he didn't have a perfect life after that. So it's well, not like he walked well, on water the whole time he was alive. Oh my gosh, no, we, we never transcend our humanity. You're absolutely right. Every one of us has flaws. Um, yes, every one of us has flaws. Nobody's exempt from flaws because we're human beings. That's right, exactly. So let's bring it to conclusion and maybe some of you will want a more lengthy discussion next Monday 
about what we presented today about the mind problem. And then we will again Tuesday in a formal way, finish the assignment in terms of the reading for sure and my commentary on it. And then we'll have plenty of time also to explore your experience and comments and questions. So please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference.